You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Well, last time we were together in the Gospel of Mark, we got to look at uh, Simon Peter's most famous confession uh, in chapter 8, back in uh, chapter 8, verses 29. Remember, Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter stands up speaking for the twelve, and he answers them, "Uh, you are the Christ. Well, Peter rightly acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ. He was this long-awaited Messiah, that he came to save his people. But then as Jesus soon began to teach, he began to teach on the footsteps of that statement. He began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then after three days rise again. And so Peter and the disciples, not understanding all of this, Peter takes it upon himself to rebuke Jesus. He rebukes the king of the universe to which Jesus responds in verse 33, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So in one breath, Peter is proclaiming the most glorious truth about Jesus Christ. But in the next breath, he's rejecting Jesus' plan to suffer and to die and to rise again. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So since Peter's confession in the Scripture, the focus begins to shift away from Galilee and begins to to shift towards Jerusalem. Actually, when we get to chapter, end of chapter 10 and 11, uh, it's really all about Jesus' final days. When you look at the book of Mark, almost half of the book is about uh, the last couple weeks of his life. But as we see the, the shift changing here, we know that ultimately at the end, Jesus is walking towards a cross, right? And then he's also going to resurrect from the grave, and he's also going to ascend to heaven. And his very disciples, these apostles who are following him right now, after he leaves, they're going to face persecution, They're going to face suffering. They're going to face trials. And they're all going to face death for the sake of the gospel. Now, I know that we're not facing much persecution here in Canada. Not a lot of suffering for the name of Christ yet. I believe it is coming. And if we truly live out our faith, I believe we will be rejected. We will be persecuted to some extent. And as the days go on, it's only going to get worse. And so as we endeavor as a church here to be walking, following Christ together like the disciples, we got to wrestle with this concept of denying ourselves at the end of chapter 8, taking up our crosses, losing our lives for the sake of the gospel. And so, friends, we need to ask ourselves that if the rubber truly hits the road and we're faced with fierce persecution— an affliction. Where is our faith going to be? Are we going to stand strong? 
And Jesus said right before our text today, he said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so as the disciples need more faith, we see that's a reoccurring theme in the book of Mark. The disciples need more faith. We need more faith. We need our faith strengthened. The question that we're looking at this text, the question that we want answered today is, how do we keep our faith while losing our lives? And we're going to be looking at that in chapter 9, verses 1 to 13, starting in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help this morning. Lord, we need your spirit to be mightily at work inside of us. Lord, we know that when we are born again, when we are saved, your spirit comes and resides within your people to comfort, to guide to illuminate the scriptures, to show us the right way. Lord, this morning we need to know the right way. Would you light our path by your word, by your spirit? Lord, would you use this day to get glory for yourself, renew our minds, transform our hearts, and motivate our feet by your word, we pray. Amen. So as Jesus, as we just read, he gloriously transfigures before his disciples. What we're going to see here this morning is there's, there's four glorious truths that we must hold to if we want to keep our faith while losing our lives. And the first truth is this, is that we must behold his unveiled glory. He is the radiant Messiah. Back to verse 1. He said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. 
And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. We must behold his unveiled glory. He is the radiant Messiah. So when Jesus begins uh, this statement here with the words, truly I say to you, he reveals that he's speaking with the authority of God. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, the prophets of old would often begin their arguments with thus saith the Lord, right? They were speaking for God, but right here Jesus speaks as God and says, truly, amen, I say to you. And whenever he says that, it really means that our ears need to be open. His disciples need to hear. This, this lesson that we're about to witness is extremely, extremely important for us to understand. He says, truly, I say to you, to his disciples, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus looking at his disciples, knowing that they're still confused, knowing that their unbelief, uh, knowing that they're confused over the fact that he must suffer and he must die and he must rise again. And so he reveals to them all that something monumental is about to happen. Something really big is about to take place right here. But it's only for some right now. And it has all to do with seeing. It has to do with seeing the kingdom of God coming in power. And we see uh, this mysterious statement being fulfilled right here in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, after six days, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John. Now this is just a few of his disciples, right? In fact, we see this quite often uh, as Jesus leads his disciples. He will take three guys away. Sometimes he'll take four. These three are the most prominent uh, ones that he takes away most of the time. And what he does is he takes them and he, he's discipling them and he's focusing his energy on these three men and he leads them up this high mountain. The fact that it's a high mountain is really important as well. It's not just any mountain. It's a high mountain, and he takes them all by themselves. Now, throughout uh, redemptive history, mountains are extremely important. Jesus would go up mountains to pray. Jesus performed miracles on mountains. Jesus preached on mountains. He was tempted on a mountain. He was even crucified on Mount Calvary. Mountains seem to be a place where major things happen in the life of Christ, and so we should expect no less right here. In fact, as you look at the rest of Scripture, mountains play an extremely important role throughout the Bible. Mountains seem to be the place where God and humanity often encounter themselves in power. Just think of Abraham and Moses and Elijah. And so it's no little thing that Jesus takes this inner circle of men up this high mountain all by themselves. Luke tells us that when they get to the top, Jesus prays with his disciples. 
And so as they're at the top of this mountain, all by themselves, all and they're praying, all of a sudden something incredible begins to happen. Verse 2 says, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now this word transfigured here comes from the Greek word metamorpho. Metamorpho means to change, means to transform. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. So when you hear of that word metamorphosis, what's the first thing you think of? My mind flashes back to elementary, you know, a little caterpillar, little squishy caterpillar, you know, goes to the end of a branch and makes a cocoon, and, and then he transforms into a beautiful butterfly. He changes from something that seems really basic into something that much more beautiful, that much more glorious. And so as Jesus is transfigured before the eyes of his disciples, his appearance is changing before their very eyes. And what they end up seeing is extreme, bright, radiating light coming out of him. It said that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In Luke's gospel, it says Jesus' clothing became dazzling white. It also says that his face was altered in Luke 9.29. In Matthew's gospel, he says that Christ's face shone like the sun. Anybody ever try to look at the sun? How long can you look at the sun? Not very long, right? It's so intensely bright, it'll burn your eyes. His face was shining like the sun. It would have been a blinding white light pouring out of, the G- out of Jesus from every inch. And the disciples are seeing all this right in front of their faces. Now, back to the topic of mountaintops. When you think about mountaintops in Scripture, what's one of the first things that you think about when you think about the Bible? What's, what's the number one mountain that would come to your mind when you're looking at the Bible? Mount Sinai. Now, when we think about Mount Sinai, we also think about light, right? Blinding, glorious, radiant light. And so as we're looking at, at this light pouring out of Jesus, we also need to remember Moses. We need to remember Moses' experience on a mountaintop, Exodus 24, 15 to 17. Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. I hope you noticed that there. Pretty hard not to connect those six days with the six days that Mark says at the very beginning here. After six days, he's connecting these stories together. Back to Exodus, on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. We also know later that Moses asks God to show him his glory, right? And as the story goes, 
God agrees to this. And he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers him with his hand because he can't see the face of Jesus or see the face of God and and live. And so he covers him and he passes by him with his glory and Moses is allowed to look at just a glimpse of his back. Exodus 34:29. So as, as Moses seen this, this little glimpse of glory, he comes down the mountain. And what he didn't know was that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So as Moses saw the presence of God, Moses' appearance also changed. His face was shining so bright with the Shekinah glory of God that the people, when he got to the bottom, would have to cover his face with a veil because it was shining so brightly. Now, what we learned from that is that we can't see the glory of God without being changed. Now, the difference between Moses and Jesus, though, is like the difference between the sun and the moon. So in our sky, we have, we have two Uh, sources of light, two major objects of light in our sky here on earth, one for the day and one for the night, says in Genesis. You know, one of those is the source of light, though, and the other one is just a reflector of the light. And so while Moses' appearance was changed because he was with God, Christ's appearance changed because he is God. Moses was just a reflector of the glory of God. Jesus is the source of the glory of God. And so as Jesus transfigured before Peter and before James and before John, what he was doing was revealing more of himself, revealing more of his glory, showing them that he is the radiant, glorious Messiah. He is the God of glory. And then at that very moment, at that moment, Christ's appearance was changed. His nature wasn't changed. What he was doing was revealing more of himself. He chose to reveal the heavenly glory that pours out of him to his people. It's like he opened the curtain of himself, the heavenly dimension, to reveal his divinity to these men. His clothing turned radiant white. Not because his clothing changed color. His clothing couldn't contain the white, bright light shining from within him. You see, Jesus wants them to see that he is the glorious Messiah. He wants them to see who he really is, that they can trust him no matter what. That they can trust him when he says, I must suffer and die and rise again. They can believe him. And they can also trust that whatever comes their way, the glorious Messiah will save them. And so as we go back to that question we're asking ourselves about keeping our faith while losing our lives, what we're seeing here is that we need to behold his glory. We need to behold the glory of Jesus Christ as well. Now you may say, well, Jesus hasn't taken me up a mountaintop. Jesus hasn't transfigured before me. 
how is my faith going to be strengthened if I can't see the very glory of Jesus Christ? I don't get to see this unveiled glory. It's great for the disciples, but what about me? Well, my answer to you would be this. You do get to experience this. You get to experience this every day if you want to. Well, you might be saying, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, as you open the pages of God's Word, as the Spirit of God illuminates His text into your heart, you get to see the glorious Christ every day. We don't have to go up a mountain to experience this. The book that we've been given, the Bible, is our mountaintop experience. Every page of this book reveals the radiant glory of Jesus Christ. But we have to open it up in order to see it. And when we do, trust me when I tell you, Jesus will show his glory to you through the pages of Scripture. But you have to open it up. And when you do open it up, and when Christ reveals his glory to you, as the word shines into your heart, as the Holy Spirit uses it to transform you, you can't see the glory of God without being changed. This Greek word, metamorpho, is only used four times in the scriptures. Twice it's used in the Gospels, talking about the transfiguration, and the other two times it's used in Romans and 2 Corinthians. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed, metamorpho, by the renewal of your mind. So as the Spirit is implanting the glorious Word of God in your heart, and as you see Jesus shining forth from the Scriptures, you will be changed. You will be transformed. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit always works in accordance with the Word of God. They are not separate. Brothers and sisters, if we want to keep our, keep our faith while losing our lives, we need to be beholding His glory. And when we behold his glory, we're transformed. And we're also strengthened for the days ahead. So let me ask you, is your faith being strengthened right now? Is your faith being fortified for the days ahead? Or is your faith struggling? Will your faith stand the test Well, we need to ask ourselves, am I being transformed by the glory of God as revealed through his word by his spirit? And so as we move forward as a church, we are, we are, we are a Bible-focused church. Right? We, we believe that this is a powerful book, that the spirit, you, this, isn't just, this isn't just a book of paper and, and words. It is living and active, it is powerful, and it will transform you. And we can behold the glory of Jesus Christ through this book, and he will strengthen our feet for the days ahead. Well, not only as we move forward in this text, not only 
do we have to behold his unveiled glory, we also have to remember his ancient testimony, that he is the fulfilled revelation. So as Jesus is radiating this blinding glory before his disciples, we're going to see more incredible things happening here. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This is unbelievable. This is incredible. You see, Moses died some 1,300 years before this. And if you remember, Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire about 800 years before this transfiguration. But here we see them talking with Jesus Christ. These pillars of the Jewish faith have miraculously appeared and are now standing and they're talking with Jesus. It's incredible. And again, as we look at all of these things working itself out in the Gospel of Mark, this is no accident. Jesus is revealing so much to his disciples right now. It's really interesting to see also that it seems that Moses and Elijah seem to know Jesus. They're they're standing and they're communing with him. And I wonder what they're talking about. Well, Luke's Gospel tells us. Luke's gospel tells us that they're talking about his death, uh, the cross, the departure from this world, everything he was just telling his disciples he must do. But then we need to ask ourselves the question, why is Moses and Elijah here? What's that all about? Why, and why these two? Why not Adam? Why not Noah? Why not Abraham? Why not David? <coughs> why Elijah and Moses? Well, you see, not only, not only are, are Moses and Elijah pillars of the Jewish faith, and not only are they great deliverers of God's people, and not only have they encountered the living God on mountaintops in Scripture, and not only are they the ones who performed the greatest miracles in the Old Testament, the most important thing we see here is that these two men, Moses and Elijah, represent everything that has been written by God to his people up to this point. They represent the Old Testament scriptures. You see, at the time of Christ, the Jews would refer to the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament at that time, they would refer to it as the Law and the Prophets. So the law was the first five books written in the Bible, written by who? Moses. And the rest of the Jewish Old Testament was referred to as the prophets. And Elijah was regarded as the greatest prophet. And so we see here that Moses and Elijah are representing the ancient scriptural testimony of Yahweh. Of God. And so, what's going on here is Jesus is intentionally showing his disciples that he is the supreme fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And the fact that Elijah and Moses are talking with him about his departure reveals that they're good with it, they agree with it. It's telling us that the testimony of the scriptures have been anticipating this, they've been looking forward to this. 
The fact that Christ has to die and rise again lines up with all of Scripture. The whole Old Testament has been pointing forward to Jesus Christ and his atonement for sins. And so the disciples need to remember. They need to remember the ancient testimony. They need to remember that he is the fulfilled revelation. And so for us as well, we have to remember, we have to remember that this book that we have here, the Bible, both New Testament and Old, speaks about Jesus. It points to Jesus, and it always points to our need of Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the Mosaic law, and he fulfills all of the messianic promises. He fulfills all of the law and the prophets. That's why Elijah and Moses are standing there. This whole book is about Jesus. And if you don't see his glory revealed in this book, you don't have life. Jesus says in John's Gospel, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says this book is all about him. And he's talking specifically about the Old Testament, that it's all about him. The whole book testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ. He fulfills it all. He's plan A. There is no plan B. John 1, 1 1-2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is not just showing up on the scene and intersecting himself. This has been the plan since the beginning. The law and the prophets was anticipating this the whole time. And so we got to embrace this fact that he is the supreme. He is the fulfilled revelation of God. i got to tell you, up to, up to about eight years ago, I really didn't know how the Bible fits together. I used to think the Old Testament was just a collection of disconnected moral stories with an angry God. And that the New Testament was just all about Jesus. It was just all about love. I had no idea how the law and how the prophets were all pointing to Jesus Christ. It wasn't until I started studying what's regarded as biblical theology, which is understanding the Bible as a whole, seeing the meta narrative as a whole, that there is a redemptive story from beginning to end going on here. It's not until I started studying the whole scriptures all together that I began to truly appreciate the goal of the Bible. Graham Goldsworthy writes, he says, The Bible is the one word of the one God about the one way of salvation through the one Savior, Jesus Christ. It is unified. It's all telling one story. The whole Old Testament is pointing to the cross. The New Testament is pointing back to the cross. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the ancient witness, these pages of Scripture, and we see how Jesus fulfills all of it, This only strengthens our faith in God. 
I know for me, understanding this as a whole and seeing how it's all connected has blown my mind wide open. God has become greater. He has become more sovereign in my eyes. And he's emboldened my feet to follow him. And so Jesus wants his disciples and he wants us to be looking to the scriptures and see how they verify who he is. So we must behold the unveiled glory. We must remember his ancient testimony. And next, we must obey his divine authority. Jesus is the Holy Son of God. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Friends, we must obey his authority. We must obey his divine authority because he's the only son of God. He's the holy son of God. You ever have one of those friends who uh, tends to speak up when they should really be quiet. Somebody who just can't help themselves in any kind of scenario. They're saying something at all times. Well, as Jesus just transfigured this amazing thing and Moses and Elijah are standing and they're talking with Jesus, Peter, (laughs) Peter is one of those guys who's got his foot in his mouth half the time. It seems like he just can't help himself here, even when he's afraid. Verse 6 says, they didn't know what to say because they were afraid, but Peter, Peter began talking. This doesn't stop him from opening his mouth. In seeing Moses and Elijah with Jesus, Peter pipes up and he blurts out, Rabbi, teacher, this is good that we are here. And then he, he goes to Jesus and, he, and, he, and he's telling him, he's, he's got some really good plan here, right? He says, let us make three tents or tabernacles. We have an NASB. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see, in his fear and in his desperation, he is so overwhelmed with what just happened and he is so, oh, so afraid The only thing he could make sense of is that he knew that this was really good. I mean, Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking together, this is really good. And he didn't want it to come to an end. And so he hatches this plan to make dwelling places for them. He plans to make tabernacles for them. That should remind us of even the Exodus when the Lord would dwell with his people through the tabernacle, his presence. His plan was that Jesus and Moses and Elijah could all just stay together on this mountaintop and they could begin building this powerful kingdom together. But how does Jesus respond? He responds in silence. He says nothing. He wants nothing to do with the earthly plans of man. He doesn't even respond to Peter's camping plan. 
And Peter gets that awkward, silent treatment from Jesus. And then all of a sudden we see God, the Father, coming down, veiled in a cloud, just like Mount Sinai, like we read earlier. This cloud coming down on the mountain, just like with Moses, this cloud comes down and it overshadows them and it envelops them and the presence of the Lord is there. And a voice from God comes out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus is the beloved son. Listen to him. So Peter's plan to pitch these tents looks really, really foolish right now. Elijah's, Elijah and Moses are gone. And all that's left is Jesus and this thundering command from heaven itself still permeating the mountain. Instructing Peter to stop talking and start listening. Listen to the, the beloved Holy Son of God. So not only has the truth of Jesus been revealed by his glory shining forth, not only has it been revealed by the testimony of the scriptures, now the truth of Jesus is powerfully confirmed by the very thundering voice of God himself. If you remember back to Jesus' baptism, God the Father said something very similar, right? He said in chapter 1, verses 11, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. He was speaking directly to Jesus then. But in this instant, he is speaking to Peter and he's speaking to the disciples. And he's saying to them, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. I don't think it can get any clearer than that. What other proof is needed for them to believe? What more can God show them so that they could trust and follow and obey Jesus Christ alone? So what God the Father is revealing here as well, Jesus has all authority. Listen to him, he says. That the only hope for a disciple of Jesus Christ is to fully believe the very words of Christ. Why? Because he's the Holy Son of God. So this is a direct rebuke to Peter's potential plan to stop the death of Jesus. And it's abundantly clear that the disciples from here on out must hold fast to the words of Jesus Christ. To listen to every word. To obey it. They're not to be second-guessing his word. They can't try to undermine his word. Every word from Jesus is a word from God. Moses prophesied about Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18.15, he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. In fact, what's so amazing about this, thinking about the foolishness of Peter at this time, and then fast-forwarding to seeing him in the book of Acts, and we see Peter preaching in, in Acts chapter 3, and he quotes this exact verse from Deuteronomy, that we should be listening to Jesus. Here Peter is preaching in the temple courts, 
after Jesus died, after he rose from the grave, after he ascended to heaven and sent his spirits. This disciple whose ears were often closed and his mouth was often open, who was always getting in trouble, is now calling the people of Israel to repent and to listen to every word of Jesus Christ. And then what happens? Thousands of people are getting saved. And then Peter gets arrested begins to experience the same persecution of his Savior. For Peter, it was a bumpy ride. But Peter gets the point in the end. He gets the fact that Jesus has to die, that Jesus has to rise again, that that he had to ascend to the Father. And then with that, Peter also learned that he's going to have to die to himself. He's going to have to pick up his cross. He's going to have to follow Jesus until one day he's even crucified on a cross himself. So as we're looking at this command to listen to Jesus, we need to ask ourselves, are we listening to him? Are we obeying him? To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Some of us profess to love Jesus Some of us profess to follow Jesus, and yet when we look at his commands to us in Scripture, we think we have the freedom to reject them. We don't have that freedom. God the Father said, listen to him in obedience. And so as it's always good to examine ourselves and be thinking about our listening, How are we doing when it comes to obeying the commands of Jesus Christ? When you look at the things he said and when you look at Scripture, there are many imperatives. We love the indicatives. They lead our hearts. But the Spirit helps us to follow in his ways and to obey his commands. And there are clear commands in Scripture. How are we doing when it comes to repenting of sin? How are we doing when it comes to following him? To pray with faith. To deny ourselves. To not fear. To keep his word. To not judge. To love our enemies. To honor our parents. To choose the narrow way. To store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. To not commit adultery. To not lust. To seek first the kingdom of God to steward our gifts, to make disciples, to keep his commandments. How are we doing with that? Are we truly listening? Are we obeying? What Jesus commands is always good and it's always right. It's good for us. Often when we choose to to sin, we think that God's withholding something from us. It's not. Every command from Scripture is so good, so good for us. And yes, we can never keep all of these things perfectly, right? That's why we need Jesus. That's the gospel. We can't keep Ten Commandments. We can't keep all of those commandments I just read, those imperatives. That's why we need Jesus. He's the one who's kept all of those perfectly so that we can be saved by him 
and be born again in him, his spirit comes into us and enables us to actually follow in his ways. And we're not going to do it perfectly, but our goal should be nothing less. We shouldn't be okay with our sin. It should grieve us because it grieves God. And so we must obey his divine authority. He's the holy son of God. And then in closing, we must embrace his bold humility as well because he's the suffering Savior. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So these disciples, these three, Peter, James, and John, they, they can't share what they have saw, what they saw on this mountaintop. They can't share this. I don't know how you could contain that. But they can't share that until Jesus has risen from the grave. Verse 10, so they obeyed it. They kept it. They kept the matter to themselves, it says, even though they were questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Right? Even though that they're believing in this resurrection now that, that Jesus is showing them, they're not quite 100% sure what this looks like. And so they're questioning what this means. Verse 11 they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, the, there was prophecy, right, in, in Malachi, talking about Elijah coming. The scribes knew this prophecy in Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so Jesus answers them in verse 12. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So what Jesus is saying here is that this prophecy of Elijah in Malachi was fulfilled. But fulfilled in who? Is fulfilled in the death, the life and the death of John the Baptist. We already studied this at the start of Mark. Matthew's gospel reveals to us in chapter 7, verse 13, the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking of John the Baptist. Elijah, this prophecy of him coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord, is fulfilled in the life of the last greatest prophet, John the Baptist. And if we remember, John the Baptist was beheaded right? By Herod. And all that's left is Jesus. All that's left is Jesus. And he is enough. And Jesus must suffer many things and will be treated with contempt because he has to finish what he has started. And brothers and sisters, we know the rest of the story, right? We know that Jesus does suffer horrifically. We know that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Romans and even the crowds were going to hate him. They were going to mock him. In his final days, Jesus is going to be betrayed by his own disciples. He will be denied by his disciples. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be scourged. Jesus 
is going to suffer the greatest agony and affliction that man can throw at him. But even more than all of that, as Jesus hangs on the cross in his final breaths, God the Father is pouring out a cup of wrath upon his Son, upon his sinless, only begotten Son. That cup of wrath represents my sin, represents your sin, represents the sin of all those who would believe. And he's pouring it out on his son. And Jesus gives up his spirit, proclaims that it is finished because he's our suffering savior. He didn't come as a king to drive out the Romans and to take over Israel, to take it back. He came to suffer and die and rise again. He's the only way. He's plan A. There is no plan B. It was the perfect plan. Jesus had to live. He had to die. He had to rise again from the grave so that you and me and sinners across this world can come to know him and have life in him and bring glory to God forever. So even though the disciples struggled And they would continue to struggle understanding these things. Even as they struggled with the thoughts of losing their own lives, more faith was given. And more faith sustained them to the end. If you look at the histories of these men, every one of them suffered for the sake of Jesus Christ. And most of them died cruel deaths because of the name of Jesus. And ever since then, countless Christians have been suffering, have been facing trials, and have been killed for the name of Jesus Christ. And he's worthy of all of it. They truly believed. And so when we think of ourselves, when we think of this nation we live in, it is, it's, it's, it's pretty easy here. We're not facing much. You know, it might be a Twitter battle here or, or a friend decides not to be your friend anymore because you're sharing Christ. Those are good. Keep, keep, keep pressing, keep sharing, keep loving. But when the real persecution comes, if we want to keep our faith without losing our lives, we must behold his unveiled glory. We must remember the ancient testimony. We must obey his divine authority. We must embrace his bold humility because we serve a radiant Messiah. He has fulfilled all of the revelation. And he is the Holy Son of God. And he is our suffering Savior. Let's pray.